Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Happy Father's Day again. If you are new to our church or have a bad memory, my name is Dave, and um, I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor here at Harvest. And um, last week, we began a series that I've been waiting really nearly a quarter century to start preaching. It's the Gospel of John. It's a book that has meant a great deal to me personally, and I've really wanted to honor uh, this very precious passage of Scripture. Um, and I, I feel perhaps that I'm ready to make an attempt now, and so I'm, I'm trying. And uh, I love the Gospel of John. It has, every time I've read it, touched me in some powerful ways. I, I see Jesus more clearly through the Gospel of John. And last week in the introduction, um, what we established was that John's motive for writing the Gospel of John is stated near the end of the book, where he says, I'm writing this so that you will see Jesus clearly and then believe in him so that you will have eternal life. Uh, It's the same motive with which I want to preach this series. And I think it's important to know that the Gospel of John is not just for those who don't believe in Jesus, but it is for all of those who do believe in Jesus, that we would go on continuing to believe in Jesus. Because I've known a great many people who started believing in Jesus and fell away from him along the way because life proved heavier than the strength of Jesus to hold up that weight. So we need to keep Jesus visible in front of us. Uh, The beginning of the book of John, the first 18 verses, they're commonly referred to as the prologue. It's like an introduction to the book, but what's beautiful about the prologue to the Gospel of John is that it contains a kind of synopsis, a rough outline of some of the the rich, big ideas that John will develop in the rest of the Gospel. And so I want to read that prologue, but I'm not going to preach from the whole thing. I'm going to zero in on the first three verses today, because there's just... I wanted to actually try to preach the Gospel of John in big chunks, um, and I may be more successful doing that later. I just could not reduce the first 18 verses to a single message. Um, that was painful to try. And so I just didn't do it, because I avoid pain. So I'm going to just tackle the first three verses, but I'd like to read for you the first 18 verses in their entirety. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. 
He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You can see why only a fool or a master would attempt to preach from that in one sermon. There's just so much there. And if you look carefully, you'll find that there are some beautiful concepts which will echo out through the remainder of of the Gospel of John. I want to point out some of those for you. Jesus is frequently referred to as the Word, and that's important because we live in a world where sometimes it feels like God is so silent. And sometimes we live in a world where the people we love are so silent, and we long to hear words, but some of us never hear those words we need to hear. God is the God who speaks. Jesus is the light of the world. And that's important because we live in a world where the darkness feels sometimes like it's rolling like a a tsunami wave over everything. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think about the darkness that I see everywhere, and it's overwhelming. And it's good news to hear that Jesus brings light. It's also wonderful news to hear that what Jesus brings into the world is life because death is everywhere. You know, there's a sharp increase in the common culture in apocalyptic stories about zombies and epidemics and the end of the world coming through disease. When it was nuclear war, I kind of wasn't as scared. When it was other things, not as scared. Alien invasion, not that scared. Comets, not that scared. But disease frightens me because I could see it happen. But epidemic just wipes out everybody. And death is just such a part of it. And if it's not that, it's sickness, it's accidents, it's just everywhere death prevails in the world. And to hear the good news that Jesus brings life is really, really uplifting and strengthening. He says that through Jesus, we become adopted as sons and daughters of God. That's important because many of us walk through life feeling very much like orphans in our hearts. Like we have no one and nothing. 
And God tells us through Jesus that we will always have him if we believe. And this is just a, a survey. There's more in this prologue that I'm covering here. But another piece of wonderful news is that God didn't remain far away. He didn't abandon us. We're not alone. Life is not just cold, sterile, meaningless chance. But that he came and dwelt among us. And he crossed a large distance to get to us, which we, in our wildest dreams, could not have crossed. The story of the Tower of Babel was a symbol, an illustration of man's desire to walk towards God, to attain the heavens, and to show us how impossible it is for us to get to God, how important and necessary it was for God to get to us. It's much like when you're in a fight with a loved one that you have done wrong against, And despite all your apologies and groveling and boxes of chocolate and flowers, you cannot get this person to come back towards you. And it is so heartbreaking. You realize then how little control we have over the heart of others. And we were in that place with God. And he came to us. When we repented, He drew near to us across that impossible divide. So these are some of the wonderful ideas, these truths that John develops. And there's a reason we call the Gospels good news, because this is not just good news of some distant religion that has nothing to do with real life. This is good news for the crappy world most of us have to live in every single day. And if you're sensitive, I'm sorry I just used the word crappy. I hope I haven't lost you, but... I wanted to use a stronger word because that's the way our world feels a lot of the times to me. And I know some of you are right there with me. So I want to introduce Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior, to all of us once again through the series. And to remind you that in Jesus we have good news. And what Jesus brings to our lives is exactly the opposite of what the world keeps throwing at us. This morning, I want to focus on the first three verses. Here's what they say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. How many of you have been to Hollywood Studios in Orlando? Anyone? Keep your hands up. That's a very expensive trip. You might as well raise your hand once in church. All right. And how many of you rode the Aerosmith roller coaster while you were there? Yeah, it's one of my favorites in the world. And one of the reasons I love the Aerosmith roller coaster was because most roller coasters start off building anticipation. Tick, 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 tick. And it's like, oh, you're getting ready. But the Aerosmith roller coaster is more like my personality. Right from the circles, like, you're going zero to 60 instantly, and it freaks you out because you're waiting for the click, 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 and it just zooms right off the bat. The Gospel of John is a little bit like that. See, all the other three Gospels, they start gradually. There's this unfolding. Here's Jesus, a baby born in Bethlehem. Here's Jesus, a young man no one had ever heard of, rising to prominence and beginning his earthly ministry. It's as if the other three gospel writers understood you have to introduce a person 
gradually. What's your name? You don't just start off going, hey, so what's your big story, the secret of your life? You say, what's your name? Where do you work? Where do you live? And so that's what the other guys do. But John, he goes, no, I can't do that. I've had longer than all my brothers to think about who Jesus was to me. He outlived all his friends, those 12 originals. He outlived them all. He was writing this as an old man. He had a long time to ponder this life-shaping experience of knowing Jesus of Nazareth. And as he sets down the story, he can't begin gradually. He goes right off the bat like the Aerosmith roller coaster. Bam! And he begins with, this guy that I knew that I'm introducing to you, he was God. He was God. He is God. And if we're ever going to know him or understand him or even talk intelligently about him, that's where it has to start. You cannot try to talk about Jesus as though he were just a great man, no matter how great his greatness is in our mind. We have to begin always talking about, thinking about, meeting Jesus at the starting point that this is God infinite eternal. It's no accident that um, he begins with these words, in the beginning. Those are familiar words. If they're not familiar to you, it's how the Bible begins. So he's linking the beginning of everything to the beginning of the story of Jesus. And the reason I think he zooms right into it like this is because, uh, here's my theory, and I could be wrong. I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven. John, I got to know, why did you just, like, slam us into the brick wall right away like that. I think it's because he was still trying to come to grips with this wonder that this guy, that I, I smelled his breath. I heard him break wind. You know, there are people who think Jesus never farted. That's nonsense. It is, to, to be human is to fart. Like, Jesus was fully with us down here. He got hungry. He got tired. He needed to sit down. He went to the bathroom. He talked. He cracked jokes. John calls himself several times in this gospel the disciple whom Jesus loved, indicating he didn't just have a passing relationship with Jesus, but he would consider Jesus a personal friend, something like a brother to him. And yet he's tossing around in his mind the revelation that he'd witnessed in his life of Jesus rising to heaven Stepping out of his burial place. Seeing the holes in his hands and his feet. And realizing finally, after all of it, just who he was. And it was blowing his mind still. And so though he was writing a biography of the life and times of his good friend Jesus. He was also writing a self-processing work of figuring out again, how is it possible that the man that I knew, who I loved and fellowshiped with, was with God when everything was made at the very beginning? So I think John begins us there because he himself needs to begin there. It's a crazy idea that Jesus, who wore human flesh for those 33 years and walked the earth, existed for eternity before that with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And I pointed out that he uses the words, in the beginning, every Jew 
who read this gospel would immediately recognize those words and say, oh, John is making a huge statement here. That the story of Jesus and the creation of the whole world are linked. Because in Jesus, he is remaking the world. He is reshaping humanity and history itself. And what's so interesting is this. The universe, everything we know, the the finite boundary of our whole reality, had a beginning. That's the startling truth of the words with which the Bible begins. In the beginning, which means all of this, everything we know that we call real, had a start. And if it had a start, that means there was a time when none of this existed. There was a time when the universe wasn't, but even then and for infinity beyond that, God existed. And I I was up late last night just kind of thinking about this, because as I was trying to get to bed, I started mentally thinking about that. I like to picture the universe as grand and huge as it is. I think of it as a giant bubble. Have you ever seen those, those things that kids have, those giant hoops, and you put it in a pan of bubble fluid, and you go like this, and it makes this giant bubble? That's the way I think of the universe, is as big as it is, it has an end. There's a, there's a boundary, like the Truman Show, where you keep going, you run up, don't. I don't hit the end of the universe. There's nothing more. And I think... God, crazy as it sounds, dwells in the space outside of that. And then it, it started to give me panic attacks and I because I'm like, what's outside of that? And at that point, I realized time and space itself, the word outside, has no meaning anymore. There's no outside of God. There's just infinity. And I know Buzz Lightyear told us to infinity and beyond, a mathematically stupid idea To infinity and beyond infinity is no such thing. But that's how we try to process it, is we even take something like infinity and try to make it something that has a beyond. This idea that God was always, even at the beginning of our always. If you take Genesis 1 and John 1 together, you see something pretty startling John 1 establishes that Jesus, the Word, was present at creation. And he wasn't just present like a bystander going, Dad, what you making? Oh, that's really cool. I was, I was Googling images of creation. And what bothered me is most of them that were cool had gigantic cosmic hands shaping things. But that's not how God made everything. He didn't have giant hands and he's shaping it like clay. He made everything through the Word. I'm not sure the mechanics and physics of how that worked, but we know that Jesus was the primary agent of making everything. That everything we call reality, he had a hand in setting it into the universe. So the Son was present at creation, but Genesis 1 and 2 also tells us the Father was the one who created. He was the impetus for it, and the Spirit was also hovering over the surface, which means that long before any of this existed, God in holy divine community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever hung out together before any of us existed. Now, I'm I'm kind of 
playing with concepts that I will admit are too big for my brain. It hurts my head to think too much about some of this stuff. And the truth is, it's actually kind of scary to think about it. And I realize part of the reason I feel this deep tension when I think too much about these things is in part because there is a finite nature to our human minds. Scientists have clearly established that most human beings cannot conceive of very large numbers. Even a number like 10,000. I know you think you can conceptualize 10,000, but most of us can't picture 10,000 people without putting them in a container like, oh, they would fill up my entire high school auditorium. They would fill up the the football stadium in town. That's how we think about 10,000 people, right? Um, Because the idea of 10,000 individual things is beyond most people's ability to hold and process in any meaningful concept. So one of the marks of true genius, they will say, is the ability to conceptualize very large numbers. When you hear a million, what do you think of in your head? You think of one million. You don't think of a million distinct separate things because that would explode your brain. It would. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, this, The way that these massive numbers This idea of infinity, why it is beyond our ability to grasp. How many of you know what Proxima Centauri is? It sounds so cool, doesn't it? Proxima Centauri. Alpha Centauri, which is the nearest star, is actually not a star. It's a star system, and the nearest star in that system is Proxima Centauri. Proxima meaning near, so it's the closest one. How far? When you look at the night sky, you have a sense that The stars up in the sky, twinkle, twinkle, little star. They're pretty far away. But do you realize just how far away they are? Alpha Centauri is like our next door neighbor cosmically. It's like, oh, let me just go over to Alpha Centauri and borrow a cup of sugar because it's that close. In universe distances, Alpha Centauri is like this. I'm going to just go over here. But let me tell you how far away it is from us. It is 25, what do you call that, do you know? 15 zeros? Candy bar for anyone who knows. Who said it? Yeah, that's right, quadrillion. Teacher right there. <laughs> Arthur's like, you monkeys, it's a quadrillion. It's a quadrillion. Now, this is 25 quadrillion miles away to our next closest star. You see it bright in the night sky, and you think, How do I conceive of 25? Do you know how far? I mean, we call it 25 quadrillion just because the word quadrillion makes us feel a little bit, just just 25 of those quadrillion things. Just 25. I can handle 25. Do you realize that's the distance of running one million marathons one billion times? Let, Let your mind marinate on that for a second. When you're running just one marathon, it would literally end my life to try. It would. I would die, I think, running a marathon. And this is one million of those. And when you're done with a million, you're like, oh, my goodness, a million. Now do it a billion times. Your brain can't handle it. If you think you can, you should be richer than you are. Because I'll tell you right now, so what do we do with something like that? It's just 4.25 light years. 
That sounds so like, oh, it's right there. Let's just go 4.25 light years. That's the distance that light travels in a year. See, what we do is we take infinity and it crushes us. It's too much. We can't, we can't without terror of the soul conceptualize anything at that scale. So we constantly have this inbuilt drive to reduce it to something I can access, manage in my mind because infinity scares the bejesus out of us. And if it doesn't scare us, it can't be contained in this hamster brain of ours. We weren't made for it. And so there is this inbuilt need to take large things and constantly make it seem smaller so I can wrap my mind around it. And you think about how small you're, I mean, my mind is pretty small. And if I have to wrap my mind around it, whatever I'm wrapping around it has to be pretty small too. Every Christmas you run into it, you cut two little paper for the box you got to wrap and it has that big one-inch gap. And you're like, I can't wrap this paper around this package. So we make the package smaller so that our limited minds can wrap themselves around it. And that's understandable. That's a coping mechanism. It's how we stay sane in the midst of the vastness of the universe. If our nearest star is that big and our galaxy, just the Milky Way that we live in, is like 200 million light years from one side to the other. That's just one galaxy out of 200 billion galaxies. Universe is massive. It's so big. And we have people in labs going, oh, the universe is expanding. We totally understand what's going on here. Please. Please, just calm down a little bit. Yes, you can see some things, but this is at a magnitude that exceeds the human ability to fully grasp. I'm not one of those guys who's afraid of science, okay? But I think science needs a little humility every now and then to acknowledge that what we're looking at is so infinitely vast, and even our infinite vastness has an end. And this God we worship, and this Jesus who we lift up as a champion of love and acceptance and grace, is nonetheless that same infinite, eternal, boundless God. See, because we struggle with infinity and need to bring it down to size, I think that's one of the gifts of mercy that God gave us in coming to us in the form of a man. He understood our limitation and wanted to be known. He wanted us to access him, to understand him, to know him. And if he flooded us with the fullness of him, even just his radiance reflected off the face of angels struck terror and made people nearly insane when they encountered an angelic being. This is what infinity does to us who are finite. It pops the bubble. And because God understood and had mercy, compassion on our limitation, he came to us in a form we could grasp, literally. You could wrap not just your mind around Jesus, but your arms around Jesus. And so there is this beautiful coming down, and Jesus himself represents God doing everything he can to make himself knowable to us. I love the words of John 14. The word 
became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the NIV. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, um, Pastor Matt Swain, when he was here, introduced me to this particular verse in the message translation. He said, it's awesome. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That, that is, I think, better than every other true-to-the-text translation in that it captures exactly what he did. He moved into the neighborhood. He came to where we live. Because where we lived was a certain way, he lived like us. He didn't live in a castle. He didn't float in clouds. He didn't teleport everywhere he went. He actually walked just like the rest of us, got blisters and sweaty feet. And because he came to us in flesh and blood, because he moved into the neighborhood, there is this sense of familiarity and intimacy we can actually attain with Jesus. I mean, it's very hard for me to think about God. Even with God, I have to call him Father just to wrap my mind around that. But when I think about God, infinite, immortal, almighty, it blows my mind. But Jesus, I feel I know. And I love the Jesus that I know. I find new things to admire and love in him every time I behold him. But because he's so knowable, And because he's so familiar, isn't it human nature that when someone is not distant and cold, but really friendly, we start to shrink them in our hearts and minds too? It's sometimes the case that when you are too nice to people, they start to sort of uh, underestimate you or gloss over you or minimize you in their hearts. And I think that's part of this inbuilt drive to keep reducing everything big to something small enough for us. And so we have to always fight the temptation to box Jesus in to say, oh, you don't get to be infinite, eternal, immortal, almighty God. You have to be the, the smiling, friendly carpenter of Nazareth who loved everybody and accepted everybody and kumbaya and all of those things, but you don't ever get to be associated truly with the God of the Old Testament, with the vast, infinite, universe-making God, you are God with us, and that's all you get to be. I think there's such a need in our hearts to keep Jesus penned in so that he becomes the friendly face of God. Right? Like the spokesmodel who goes, <laughs> the, same, the same company that's polluting the earth and all that, but has this really warm, smiling, tambodet, whatever kind of guy, will keep the lights on for you, and you're like, oh, that's so friendly. And maybe we think of Jesus that way. He's the PR guy, the front man. He's the one who makes God palatable. And it's all true, but that's not all he is. And that's why to truly know Jesus, we cannot just look at Jesus of Nazareth recorded in the pages of the Gospels, but we have to go where John takes us at first and says, that same Jesus is nonetheless intimately connected to the infinite God who has always revealed himself from the beginning. Paul wrote it this way in Colossians 2.9, For in Christ lives the fullness of God in a human body. Jesus was not God light. He wasn't diet God. God zero, whatever you want to call it nowadays. There are a lot of people who think that way. Like Jesus is like the nice parts of God minus the scary, violent parts of God. 
He's God minus all the yucky stuff, but he is fully God. Everything about God exists in the human body of Jesus of Nazareth. And somehow we've got to reconcile, we have to work out that tension, because to know God, to know Jesus, is to know him fully in the fullness of who he is. I think that's so important, and it explains at some level why some people are growing disillusioned and even bored with God. I like the way Pastor John Piper puts it in talking about John's gospel. Maybe it's because they share the same name, but John Piper sure likes preaching from the gospel of John. And when I was doing a little study for this, I wanted to be inspired by the good preaching of good preachers. And he had like 20 sermons on just this opening passage. I'm like, this man, seriously, he's amazing. And here's what he says about this tension between the infinity of Jesus and the intimacy of Jesus. He says, he means, speaking of John, the gospel writer, he means for us to read this gospel worshipfully, humbly, submissively, awestruck that the man at the wedding and at the well and on the mountain is creator of the universe. John says, in the very first words out of the end of my pen, I will stun you and blow you away with the identity of this man who became flesh and dwelt among us. I love that. John wants us to know that when we approach Jesus, we don't just approach Jesus like buddy Jesus. My mascot, my sidekick, my friend. But also we see in him infinity, almighty, eternal. That the same Jesus who had a conversation with one woman at a well, who loved her, saw her story in the midst of the grand scope of the entire universe he oversees. He sat with one woman and changed her life through a conversation. A woman that others in her own village had ignored and cast out time and time again. And yet that same Jesus is infinite. So that's one thing I really want to get across is God has to always become bigger because our heart's natural inclination is to make God constantly smaller. Every day I'm I'm tempted to make God small enough for me to manage, small enough for me to negotiate with, small enough for me to understand, and that's the inclination of my nature every day. God, please stay in your lane. I can't handle you bleeding over the edges into everything. It's too much. And so sometimes we become Sunday people and we say, God, stay in your lane. You be my Sunday guy. But you can't follow me to work What am I supposed to make of my life if you follow me everywhere, if you dominate everything? And so every day our temptation is to narrow Jesus. And John says, that's the wrong way to go about it because the natural inclination of your heart is to make God small. The truth of God is he is infinite. And every day the struggle you have to engage in is to see the greatness of God, not the smallness of God. The smallness of God is his gift to us. It's why we know him at all. But the greatness of God is also a tremendous gift to us. 
And to know God fully, we have to get around that somehow. Let me give you one final thought from these first three verses. And that is this, that Jesus acts like a window into the heart and nature of God for us. In other words, Jesus reveals God the Father to us properly. When it says he was with God, that word with sounds pretty harmless in English, but the Greek word that is translated there has the indication of a very um, intentional kind of relationship. It's, it suggests the picture of two people looking face-to-face, engaged in intimate conversation. It's not like we were just together like I was with him on the bus. Uh, I once was on a plane with Bill Cartwright and his son, but I wouldn't say I met Bill Cartwright or I know Bill Cartwright or I even traveled with Cartwright. We just got booked on the same vehicle together, and I was with him on that plane. With him in that if it crashed, we would both die. That's how with him I was. But I wasn't with him. Do you get it? And so this idea of with the way John is describing is for time infinite, eternal, Jesus, the Word, the Son, was with God the Father, and they talked and they fellowshiped, and they had the kind of communion which he now invites us to share. Later in John 17, he would say those exact words, that the intimacy and the communion which I have always had with the Father, I now want you to have with my Father. This is not just being with physically. Jesus and the Father are inseparable. You cannot pit them against each other. And often I hear people wanting or or desiring to do just that. To say that the God of the Old Testament who does these crazy things, these purges and wars and horrible sentences cast over people groups, how do I make sense of that God and then see Jesus of Nazareth? And I say, that's how you do it. I can't give you a tidy answer to every tension, but this is how it begins. I can't start by looking at the infinite God, the Father, and say, why do you do what you do? Because this was prior to Jesus coming. In Jesus Christ, we have the revelation of God's heart. In Jesus Christ, we have the best possible means to understand the nature and heart and character of God. To properly understand the God who has revealed himself in the Old Testament We have to look through the lens of God who has revealed himself to us in the New Testament. Because it isn't as if a violent and austere and distant father had his kind, peace-loving, friendly son. That's the way a lot of people think about it is, I don't know about your father, but man, the son is so, he's so nice. How is it possible that a wonderful boy like Noah or Elijah came from a man like Dave? I just don't get it. I know Elijah feels that way every time he plays basketball. Where did I get these skills from? Couldn't it be genetics now? (laughs) Couldn't be genetics. Here, listen. The father and the son are inseparable. They share the same heart. They're motivated by the same things. They want the same things. They feel the same feelings. And in order to make sense of who God is, we have to look through the lens of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the way we do it. The word revealed to us in scripture and the word revealed to us in the person, Jesus Christ, those are our primary ways that we apprehend who is God. Who is this God? How do I understand his nature and character and heart for us? 
At the end of this prologue, John says these words of Jesus, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. What is John saying? That this God we have talked about as God, God, the big guy upstairs, the superintendent of the universe, that God is made known through Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus because that is the best way we have of understanding what God is like and what he wants from us and how he feels towards us. God did not have a schizophrenic episode between testaments. Do you understand that? He remains the same. And the beauty and the grace and the gentleness and mercy we see in Jesus the Son also rests in the heart of God the Father. I think right now, a lot of people, maybe even at this church, are really getting close to a place of disillusionment and boredom with God. I think some people need, they feel like on Sundays they need to be like that clockwork orange guy. I need something clipping my eyes open. Because it's starting to get old and tired and tedious. I get that. I mean, you guys have to listen, but I've got to write these things every Sunday. It's like, for 25 years, I'm teaching from the same book. If it weren't a rich and infinite book, boy, this would be a pretty hard job. But the truth is, when you really behold him, God doesn't shrink over the years. He gets bigger and bigger. That's what it is to truly know God. If you're bored of God, then I think chances are your God has gotten too small. You have gotten your God to a place that you can put him in your pocket. You just stay right there, God. If you can put God in your pocket the way I put this in my pocket, then it'd be easy to grow weary of that God. A God you've figured out. A God whose every sentence you think you can complete. A God whose whole heart and character are known to you, understood fully. It's just not there. He is greater than you can imagine. And you will not exhaust the depth of him, even in a lifetime of looking. I find it amazing that I've been married to the same woman for 23 years and I'm still getting to know her. And enjoying it. I like it. I can still ask her questions and get surprised by the answer. I can still look at her and go, oh, she's pretty awesome. She's still interesting. There are still things I don't think I know about her. And there's so many things she doesn't know about me. (laughs) That's just the depth of the pool. You know, so you have so many wonderful years ahead of you getting to know me. But I feel the same way about God. If you're bored of God, you're doing it wrong. God isn't the problem, it's how you see him that has gone. And I'm not saying when you're struggling spiritually, it's all your fault. That's not my tone at all. What I'm saying is, it's like when you have a favorite show and someone goes, Star Wars, yeah, it was all right. You're like, what? 
And you get militant. You, your blood pressure goes up. No, Star Wars changed not just my life, but the entire fictional universe that we are. And, and you get all up in arms because someone has degraded something that has never stopped giving to you. When I say you're doing wrong, I don't mean it's all your fault that God feels for. I'm saying look again at what you think is God. Because if you really behold him, he just keeps getting bigger and greater. You cannot grow bored of this God. And if you have grown weary of him, my invitation to you is, through this series and as you read the Gospel of John, as you sit in the quiet of the morning and ask God of the universe to reveal himself to you, stay open to that. Ask God to become big enough. You cannot throw him away. Ask him to become big enough that you'll never grow bored of him. Take a risk during this series. If someone invites you, and that someone might even be me or another leader at this church, I want you to do something crazy. I want you to come with me to this place. And I want you to experience God in that way with me. If that happens to you at any point during the rest of this sermon series, in faith, I'm going to challenge you, just say yes. I just need to see more of God. In my little corner of the universe, I feel like I've done seeing all there is to him. I need more. And if someone invites you to something that's radical, to try something new, to see God in a different light, can I encourage you during this series, and obviously beyond, to learn to say yes to any invitation where God gets bigger. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.